Hello, this is your host Stuart Wright cutting in to let you know that this is part two of two of my podcast interview with the founder of British Urban Film Festival, Emmanuel Ayamosigwe. And if you've not listened to the first part, then that will be readily available in the archive of Britflix, wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you have listened to it, then crack on. What you will hear at the beginning is the same intro as you will have heard on part one of two. But very quickly, after we've introduced each other, it will move into the second section of the 80-minute conversation I had with Emmanuel. Thank you. I'm back to the show. This is a break from the normal Britflix.com podcast service, what I'm grandly calling the Future of Film series, where I talk to a number of professionals across the film industry about the impact of COVID and perhaps look into our crystal balls and see what that might mean for the future of film, the future of cinema, and in particular, what it means for indie filmmakers. Without further ado, on with the show. Recently, as in during the pandemic, I've interviewed 20 people who are taking part in Inside Pictures programme, and we talked a lot about what does the pandemic mean for the film industry and what does a post-COVID world mean for the film industry. And understandably, everyone had a lot of guesses and opinions, but nobody had the answer because there was 20 different answers. There was 20 different impacts. And this is people who work in production, who work in distribution, who work in exhibition, who work in sales, people who work in stop motion animation. You know, there was no real full understanding of what this might all mean. So with that in mind, I reached out to people to see if I could get some opinions on maybe how they see what's what's happened, what's happening, and what might happen in the future. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Emmanuel Ayamusigwe. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Stuart. Good to be here. Now, for context, um, you are the one... You, are you the founder or the co-founder of British Urban Film Festival? I am the founder. You're yes. the founder of British Urban Film yes. Festival. And what year was that? Uh, this was July 2005. 2005. So we're in, we're in the 16th year of what, what is the uh, British Urban Film Festival's life. Here is part two of two. But ultimately, what I asked Apple for was, can you give me a home for the festival? And without hesitation, they said, yes, we can. To the extent where initially what they wanted to offer us was a pop-up um, shop digitally. So without wanting to confuse listeners to the whole Apple experience, because obviously there's a lot of kind of Apple nuances to yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of grapple with. But ultimately what the pop-up shop meant was um, that people could potentially subscribe for a one-off payment to watch all of the buff films as part of the festival experience. But because they hadn't done anything with us before, what they ended up saying was, well, what we can definitely do is make you an Apple-approved aggregator, which is not something that you get every day. So you actually have to be invited to become an aggregator. So you, you're suddenly you're now a distributor, essentially. Yes. 
without any of the normal procedures that you'd have to go through to become mm-hmm. a distributor. So that was one of the first privileges that we got through this relationship with Apple. The other one was um, they said in order for the festival to take place, we had to find an encoding house. So these are the people that actually uh, digitize the content um, and make sure that it's compliant with Apple technical specifications. Blimey. And there's not many of these people knocking <laughs> I bet, about. I bet. So the task for me was to find uh, an Apple-approved encoding house. So they didn't just have to be an encoding house. They had to be Apple-approved. Okay, so let me just stop you there for a second, Emmanuel. So in a sense, what you're saying is Apple inviting you to be on their platform is one thing, but then Apple then say to you, make all your content ready for us. They don't say, give us your content and we'll get it ready. Exactly. Okay, exactly. okay, that's interesting. That's a really, I mean, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah, so I, I was like, okay, yeah, it shouldn't be too hard. That's what I was thinking <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so obviously I did my research. Um, I found a list of encoding houses. And true story, I, uh, the first one that I ended up on, uh, which ticks the various boxes, mm. I got in contact with them, um, Decentia Studios, they're called, Immediately, uh, one of their guys got back to me about a couple of weeks later, um, organised um, a Zoom call. Again, we spoke for about an hour or so. And they literally said they were going to take a pump because they loved the story of Buff. They loved what was happening in 2020 in spite mm. of everything. And because, obviously, they work with Apple, they know that to be part of Apple, you'd have to be someone... Yeah, yeah, you kind of... You've got all... The perception of you changes because Apple have said, we're going to make you an aggregator. So when you're talking to one of their approved companies, they go... It's like, I mean, in a sense, it's like what you did in terms of selecting filmmakers. You went, okay, those that have had successful crowdfunding campaigns have already proved their concept because people are already willing to take part. I can support some... That takes out some of the... That, that makes me, me me able to presume some of the qualities already there. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, a company that already works with Apple, working with a new company working with Apple, doesn't seem so mad anymore, does it? No. So in, so in a sense, so in December 2020, you you did an event with, you did a, you did your film festival with Apple TV, but what, what was the solution? How did British Urban Film Festival present itself then with that in partnership with Apple? What did, what was the offering? So the offering was um, through the Apple TV app, yeah. that we would host all of our fest, uh, all of our f- uh, official selections in a dedicated room. So pretty much like the anomaly of a room, you'd go in a room and you'd see all your films on a wall, you know, like on a video wall, for example. That's yeah. basically what we have on the app. So that was what the offering was. So it's like um, a, so it's like a, a curated space off from yes. all the other Apple content. You like you go to British Urban Film Festival, and then you see yeah. what British Film Festival offer. Yeah, it will be buff branded, um, and obviously what Apple had thought about in terms of purposing that room was because if you go into the room now, you'll be able to see films that are under twenty minutes, films that are under forty minutes, and films that are over an hour. So rather than group it like. Um, a love story or uh, a black films matter story. So obviously prior to the pandemic, uh, what we were doing at the first was we were kind of branding our films to make it easier for audiences to choose what types of films they might want to watch. Yeah. And obviously other film festivals do that as well. But with Apple, they decided to kind of brand it according to how long you were going to spend on Apple. 
because obviously Apple is not just a subscription service, but it's also um, a transactional service. So you can dip in and dip out. So obviously in that moment, kind of starting to understand the Apple, Apple ecosystem, it became apparent that not only were we going to be um, a film festival for Christmas, and yeah. I'm paraphrasing here, we were going to be a film festival for life, <laughs> basically. So instead of the traditional two weeks, we're now in a position where you could watch these films potentially forever. So in that one moment, financially, there's a bit of freedom there because it's like, okay, so we don't have to wait once a year for the festival. You can actually go and watch um, our film selections anytime you want it. So that was really the true eye-opener in terms of the offering, in terms of what it meant to have an existence on the Apple TV app. So as long as there was content on there, which obviously with the festival, we're always going to be having content year in, year out. We could be and probably will be on the Apple TV app forever. Being always available is a bit like then you become a platform within a platform, I suppose. It's like if I'm looking for black filmmakers or black orientated stories or urban stories of you know what what what's what what becomes your brand i would mm. go to your your aggregated page and see an offering which which fits that and i choose one of that and and then obviously the films that are on there are official selections yeah. so again there's the natural curation process which we do as a festival so all those films are on there on merit because obviously our team... How does it work? Because obviously a festival is a one-off event usually. You know, I mean, yes. when I watched Fright... The example I used before, I watched Fright Fest, but it was really a one-time offer only. I, it was a real-time event. Did you have a real-time event as well as these films available to watch? Or did you say, in December, here's some films and you can now watch rent or buy them for 12 months? As part of the ongoing conversations we had with Apple, once I was able to find the encoding house and Apple said, all right, great. We can now do the festival. Yeah. What they then started to explain was, in terms of launching the festival live, yeah. we, we had to, from our side, Buff, had to make sure that with all the official selections, that they all had to pass the quality check process. So the films had to be a specific Apple format, and the artwork had to be a specific uh, design. Mm. And it was only when all those specifications had passed that we could actually launch the festival live. Got you. So what that meant was that we couldn't announce anything in advance because naturally, if something had gone wrong in the QC process and the filmmaker or Buff had announced that this film was coming soon and yet the film wasn't ready, then obviously the PR doesn't look good. And in terms of reputation, the last thing that we were going to do was to soar that reputation by announcing a film that wasn't ready in the QC process. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so what Apple has said was, rather than go through that, just have everything ready and then literally, a la Netflix, just binge drop everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you, I get you. So already the culture of a film festival for us had changed in an instant. So gone were the days of media days, press conferences, which is what we usually yeah, have. Yeah, you, you've got rid of all that lead-up time. and the, the All of that had gone, three-month build-up, which obviously saved us a lot of money. So on the one hand, all of the kind of build-up and buzz had been lost, but also we'd saved money. So obviously we still need to think about the pandemic. We'd not launched the festival yet, so we hadn't received any income yet from the festival. So in many ways, you're still kind of weighing up the financial pros and cons as well as the well cosmetic pros and cons. So there was a lot 
going on, just kind yeah. of getting your head around. Well, look, we'll we, we'll we'll put obviously put a link in the show notes so people can directly access this this uh, the, the the buff the buff place within Apple ecosystem. Great. What does this all mean for the idea of a two week festival post COVID? I mean, if we're going to look in our crystal balls now, you've basically with this trial and error that you've done with Apple, you've established something which is a, is a film festival by name, but as you said yourself, is like binge binge watching through any other streamer in a sense, which is not the same as a festival. So, what what do you what do you think this all means then for the idea of a in situ two weeks or three weeks, whatever you whatever you want to whatever film festivals do post COVID? What does it make you think? Well, I think after fifteen years, I think we've earned we've earned the right to think differently mm-hmm. about how film should be consumed and purposed and marketed. Um, I guess if you're a startup, if you're new to kind of the film business, you're already thinking, well, how can we disrupt the status quo? How can we change, reinvent the wheel compared mm. to what's gone before? So if you're a new business, you already have that mindset. When you're 15 years down the line, I think for us, we kind of came to the conclusion that well, why can't we think like a disruptor? Because continuing to reinvent yourself is essentially what it's all about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's how everyone is having to survive. You know, you, you can't stay the same. You can't rest on your laurels. You can't sit still. And not, especially in the film and TV business where things are moving constantly. It's a very fluid uh, situation that we're in right now. Not just with Buff, but when you look at what's happening elsewhere with the likes of HBO Max, Disney+. Mm. Plus. Everyone is moving the goalposts on a daily basis. Um, ITV, BBC with Brickbox, for example. So every, everyone is uh, are having these conversations. Mm. How do we stay relevant? Because the moment you lose that relevancy, you, you might as well just pack up. So we, for us, the most important question we had to answer internally was, how do we stay relevant? And so one of the ways we tackled that was to think, well, Having a two-week film festival is not going to sustain us. One, financially, it's not going to sustain us creatively, um, especially with what Apple were telling about telling us about their ecosystem. Yeah. So in many ways, Apple were kind of fast-tracking our thinking as to how we see a film festival. So it's, so in a sense, and, like a lot of things that have, had, that have changed through COVID, it's not so much this is sort of arrived out of the blue. It's speeded up a process of change that was already in transit. Yes, and if if you if you if you speak to people at HBO Max, they would say the same thing. This has been a long time in coming. Mm. COVID has just fast tracked everything. Yeah, um, and obviously with the major studios, they've already shot films. Um, with the festival, films were already shot mm. with nowhere to go. So already there was like the fact when the, when we did announce the festival on Apple and we dropped everything, there was this massive kind of relief that Buff was here again but that it was online and that it was on Apple, it was like, this is incredible. This is unheard of. Yeah, yeah, how, yeah. How, how on earth does this happen in 2020? And for us, it could only happen in 2020. It might have happened sooner because, as I said earlier, we were already kind of thinking about repurposing content uh, with broadcasters and digitally anyway. Yeah. The fact that Apple decided that this was the year that, that they were going to kind of join hands with Buff was manner from heaven, really. So when we announced the festival a week before Christmas, and again, that was another nice touch, you know, a week before Christmas, 
what are we going to watch on telly? What are we going to watch? Yeah. All the film festivals have closed down for the year. And here's Buff on the horizon two weeks before Christmas launching our film festival. So, so in, so a way, that, in, a, in, a, in an ironic way, 12, 12 months after being announced on the honours list, you're, you're announcing a huge partnership with Apple and, uh, and a 12 months access to your programme. Yeah, it's almost like Harry Houdini, and now for my next trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of people appreciated the fact that Buff was able to kind of kick on and not rest on its laurels. Yeah. And we commanded a lot of respect. There was a lot of media coverage uh, with the festival, even though it was around Christmas time. But not to blow, you know, it's, 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 easy, for, it's easy for you to say, oh, this is what we did, this is what we did, but, you know, without blowing too much smoke up your... Your backside. It's like you'd established the prestige above over 15, 16 years. It was, you know, the the position you played into, you know, when you started a film festival, I'm guessing in 2005, you were thinking, there's a there's not a film festival representing black filmmakers and black and black stories. I want I want a film festival that has a, a focus on that. And through that, you've as you've described, you've adapted and and flexed in terms of how that's grown and what you think is needed to help grow that idea. 2020 comes along and suddenly you've got people like Apple looking actively for how they can engage more with black filmmakers and black, black stories. And you've already got relationships and represent filmmakers with exactly what they want. So you were almost like you, you were the perfect partner, but you didn't know it until the conversation started, but you don't that right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also what it meant for filmmakers was that, um, and again, this is a misconception about black film that obviously I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. The, the misconception was that black films don't travel, they don't sell well, they're not commercial. Um, they're of a inferior standard in terms of storytelling, production values. And yet here we are in 2020 with a black film festival on Apple, which has basically signaled to black filmmakers that as long as your films are of a certain standard, it's going to end up on Apple. Yeah. And as, I, as I've explained, to get onto Apple, you have to be invited and you have to meet a certain standard. Yeah. So that sudden realisation for black filmmakers was like, right, so this is how to command respect in the industry. Yeah. And so in many ways, here we are now in 2021, kind of three months into kind of the live, ex uh, the live existence of Buff on Apple. And there's a lot of filmmakers genuinely grateful, excited, and in sheer disbelief that their little film, which is what, how a lot of filmmakers see their stuff, yeah, yeah, of course, is yeah. on Apple. It's like never in a million years would you tell me when I shot this film two or three years ago that it's going to end up on Apple. It just doesn't happen. It's, but it's something you can then speak with pride to your fellow friends, your family, all the people you've had to beg, borrow, and steal from, and say, look, look, look at look at what's happened as a result. So, you know, so there's always upsides to everything that we do at Buff, and more importantly, as I said earlier, it's about putting the filmmaker first and making sure that by being part of the Buff experience, that they're always going to benefit, not just financially but materially, and in so many other unknown ways as well. Because, like I said, we're three months into this. Who knows what's going to happen in a year's time with Apple? They may want to revisit the pop-up store again. Um, we may become a subscription channel. There's so many opportunities with Apple. Um, and obviously with what's happening in the industry now with the arms race in terms of content, 
Apple always need content. And so obviously Buff is very well positioned to kind of really serve Apple uh, to their purpose. What you're proving as well. well what you're proving as well. What you're proving with the, with with the story you've been you've been able to sort of relay during this conversation is that your willingness to engage as opposed to be in charge of something is 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 reaping the benefits because of engaging is relationships, whereas in charge is telling people they can or cannot do something, which is all very gatekeepery. Whereas what you've always done is what it sounds like you've always done the way you describe it is you've 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 reached out to collaborate and to enhance one. It's it's a, it's it, it everything almost has a dual purpose. It's you're enhancing the filmmaker, the filmmaker's enhancing both. So there's never it's never just a one way thing of like come to buff we'll make you famous it's like no we're going to go we're going to grow together we're going to become important together and that message as you as you as as the as the prestige grows has remained hasn't it you you've you've managed to maintain that aspect of of what of what buff represents well the, the one thing i guess we've not talked at length yet is the relationship with bafta um, obviously, I mentioned them in passing earlier yeah. on. Okay, well, but well, again, the floor is yours, Emmanuel. Tell me what the relationship is with BAFTA. So, another of the unintended consequences um, off the back of supporting the black filmmakers yeah. was a, a dialogue with BAFTA, which was something that I was never looking for, purely because my head was always about buff and about serving the black filmmaker. Yeah. But, but what had transpired as a result of the death of George Floyd was that a lot of organisations were performatively showing their solidarity towards black people in the black community. Yeah. And BAFTA was one of those organisations, um, uh, as were so many other organisations. But because BAFTA was about film, um, I couldn't leave that unchecked. And so that became the basis for a direct dialogue with uh, the powers that be at BAFTA. Um, and obviously, um, seven, eight months on, that relationship has led to BAFTA becoming um, significant supporters of BAFTA and BAFTA being part of the BAFTA furniture in terms of us being a qualifying festival mm -hmm. for short films. So obviously, when Apple are hearing this, they're thinking... So not only are you kind of one of the only black film organisations that are supporting black filmmakers, yeah. but you've also got the approval of BAFTA um, and obviously you've got an MBE as well. What's not to like here? It's also <laughs> if you're a black filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you're a black filmmaker and you're seeing this black film festival that has got acknowledgement from the establishment, not just from BAFTA, but from His Royal Highness, you're thinking... I have to be part of this. Like, where do I sign? What do I need to do? So yeah, 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 everything yeah. just became very easy. The pathway was obvious. We didn't need to sell ourselves. You know, it's just like, this is what Buff is. If you want to be part of it, this is what you're going to be entering into. Mm. Um, if you don't want to be part of it, then best of luck, you know, you'll find a home somewhere else. But as a black film festival, there's not many of us. You know, there are black film organisations. Yeah. There are black film institutions. Um, but none of them have the track record that we have. None of them have the level of relationships and engagements that we have on a consistent, regular basis. Yeah. Um, some of the people that I've known for 15, 16 years, I'm still talking to them now. And obviously with you new know, partners yeah. like Apple, you know, 
relationships is 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 part of the reputation. No, it's I was going to say this is this is I remaining relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because I've repeated this before on the podcast, but it bears it bears it bears repeating here in what in your example is that one of the one of the you know. One of the given in film and creative industries for that for for any for any strength is that enthusiasm and talent is a given. But actually what what rewards most enthusiasm and talent is actually patience and consistency. You know, presenting yourself as being in it for the long haul is a much better way of being perceived than what can I get out of you? You know, if I'm having this conversation with you now, Emmanuel, as if as if to say, right, if I get Emmanuel on the podcast, then that gets me a conversation. You know, that'd be a ridiculous way to grow a podcast. On you know, and in the same sure. way, if you started picking filmmakers on the basis that that filmmaker would lead to this, I mean, imagine trying to piece together. Well, this will obviously mean that Apple will come knocking. You couldn't. You couldn't have done exactly. that. Exactly. You couldn't have done that. Exactly. All you could do is be true to what Buff was and be consistently that. And know that you're right in a way, in a sense, because your your aim was true. So it, so patience and consistency meant that it could grow in its own natural way, which then meant you were it was hard to ignore you in a sense. And that's the only way. That's the only currency in a lot of senses that makes sense is that some things that start from from the bottom up will over time if they if they're done well, like you've done yourself, they become impossible to ignore. And that's. And that you know, it's it's like hats off to you for that. You know, it's it's and it takes a lot of, it takes a lot to do that because it's often easy to sort of just switch switch positions, react to something, and think, oh, there's an opportunity when it might not be true to what you really do, but it, you know, and then suddenly you've kind of, you've 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 marked your own copybook, haven't you, in a sense, as opposed to and you're sort of right through it, and then that's why it pays to be consistent and relevant in spite of everything that's going on and. Mm. Obviously, life never stops. You know, life always yeah. gets in the way. And for me personally, life has always been in the way. Of buff, in spite of everything. You yeah. Know? Even though we're having this conversation, I've not, I've not talked to you about the fact that I've had to bury three members of my family whilst building the festival. My mum and dad died within an eighteen-month period. Um, I met my wife during that period. I had to bury my younger brother. So all of this in the background. Yeah. Whilst having to mortgage my house to keep the festival going you know this is all part of the story it's part of who i am and it's why obviously i feel very passionate about the festival and obviously a lot of people feel the same way as well otherwise we wouldn't be where we are well one last one last thing before we close this conversation because it's been it's been far and wide but I'm, i'm i'm interested to learn given what you've experienced and where you've ended up at this point in the story that part of your blue sky thinking is British Urban Film Festival, the cinema, the space. <laughs> yes. Tell 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 us how in a year of in a year of COVID, your thinking, my next pivot for British Urban Film Festival is a home. So, um, obviously, we've been talking about um, pivoting from a very early stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the yeah. Um, and in many ways, we're already thinking about a home for the festival um, four years ago, I believe. So uh, me and the missus were on holiday in the Bahamas. Um, can't wait to go on holiday again, by the way. But um, there we were in sunny Bahamas uh, in 2017. And it's very picturesque out there. It gives you time to think, to visualise, to think about the future and kind of... Mm where we would be in it. So again, all of that was kind of uppermost in our thoughts. And for me, I thought 
well, why can't we build a cinema? Because up to that point, Buff was essentially renting um, space from other cinemas to host the festival. Yeah. Um, it wasn't traditional rent in the sense of we were actually hiring to have the festival at the cinemas. So again, part of the relationships, I had great relationships with cinemas such as the Genesis Cinema, where in return for minimum guarantee, we were able to host the festival. So we wouldn't pay anything up front to hire the cinema. Brilliant. So again, they were kind of ba- uh, banking on the strength of the film. Is that the ta- that's Tyson, isn't it? At the uh, at uh... it is Mr. Tyrone. Tyrone, um, sorry, not Tyson. Tyrone. He's yes. a he's a, he's a but he's he's a big supporter, isn't he, of in, of indie film and and and, and the Very film and the so, filmmaker yeah. experience. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough of Tyrone and and the team down there at Genesis. Uh, they supported the festival for many years, um, from two thousand and eight, I think. So Wowzer. they've been. Yeah, and obviously the, the guys that I've worked with there, some of them have gone on to work at Curzon as well. So, yeah, big supporters of the festival. But a, for us, it got to a point whereby, well, we need our own home for the festival. You know, so how are we going to do that? Mm. That was part of my Blue Sky thinking whilst out in the Bahamas. And so whilst we were out there... Um, the Blue Sky literally got your Blue Sky thinking. The Blue Sky literally, <laughs> literally... And, and off the back of that, no, I, I had, I was thinking of my um, grandfather on my dad's side um, and I met him once in life um, and he said to me, and it remains on our wall, to think high and you'll make millions. That's the one thing I always remember my grandfather saying to me personally, because my late dad at the time introduced us as a family to him for the first time. He'd never met us. Wow. So when he met us in the flesh for the first time, he wanted to hear about what you want to do in life, et cetera, et cetera. And that was mm. the one advice that he imparted. So I've always held that advice. Yeah. And so in the Bahamas, I could hear and see my grandfather saying the same thing, think high. And then the penny drops. I'm going to build a pyramid cinema. I was thinking high, thinking, okay, build a cinema, yes, but what kind of cinema? A pyramid cinema. And then I was thinking of the Louvre in Paris. Nice. So there was already an example of such an institution, but nothing like it in the UK. So I thought, well, I know what the Louvre looks like. Can I go higher than that? Obviously with my grandfather still in my head. So then I thought, all right, how about a tower cinema? How great would that be? Because I was thinking of the Louvre, Eiffel Tower. I was thinking, okay, so what if the Eiffel Tower was a cinema and you could actually watch a cinema at the very top of the Eiffel Tower? So I started doodling and drawing and just kind of coming up with all sorts of ideas how this could look. And then I was really kind of challenging myself, thinking, what can make this a real visitor attraction? I was coming up with names for the cinema, Pyramid Place. That was the name I was going to give the cinema. And then it was going to be 24 hours as well. Again, nothing that had been done before. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is a place where people can not only watch film, but can potentially stay there. So you can have a hotel downstairs, a restaurant. Really kind of thinking of my own experience of going to the cinema and how in many ways cinemas have been trying to pivot in terms of making it not just a place where you go and watch film, but a place where you can hang around, meet friends, have lunch, maybe stay in a hotel or whatever. Yeah. So all, all these things were always going around in my head, thinking, well, if we had our, our own cinema, what would it look like? 
And so that was the basis for Buff having its own cinema in 2017. The reason why I signaled that year was because three months later, I was then a member of the Royal Television Society, the RTS. And they hosted an event in March with the chief executive of BT. Um, and the event took place at the BT Tower. Now, for those people that don't know the history of the BT Tower, it was close to the public in 1980 because it was bombed by the IRA. Um, so they were telling me about uh, the history yeah. of the BT. I did some kind of research into it myself. And I had no idea about the history, but when it was opened in the 60s, they had a rotating restaurant on the 34th they did, floor yes. that was managed by Butlins. Was I didn't know managed by Butlins, well? is that right? <laughs> it was managed by Butlins. Amazing. And the, per the person that commissioned, uh, it was then called the Post Office Tower at the time, yeah. was Tony Benn. It was his idea to have this tower in the middle of London, Fitzrovia. And it was later called the BT Tower. And then, like I said, it was shut to the public in 1980. But so when I went there for this event um, as an RTS member, the first thing I noticed was they had a cinema on the ground floor, literally a screening room, about 100 plus seats, where obviously they were showing us various montages of BT, BT Sport, the history of BT. And I was fascinated by it. I was thinking, wow. This so, was what this is. This, this is in the building, or this was put on for the event. This is in the building. No, this wow. is inside the BT Tower. On, because obviously, not many people have been in there. So here I am with the privilege of being an RTS member, being shown um, this building, and obviously, we were also taken to the thirty-fourth floor. Nice. And the lifts that take you there, it takes twenty seconds from the ground floor to go to the thirty-fourth floor. So. It, you feel like you're in your plane and your ears are popping. Oh, wow. And in the lift, it's telling you how fast the lift is going. How long after does your stomach catch up with you arriving? <laughs> My ears actually popped. I, I couldn't oh, wow. actually hear anything. So it's until you got out of the lift. And then when you get out of the lift and the doors open, you then have this panoramic view of London. So it's really like you've been transported into this whole new world. But in that moment, I was then taken back yeah. to my experience with the Bahamas of the Tower Cinema, and then the penny dropped. This is why I'm going to host the festival. You're a man amazing, making amazing connections. That's uh, drawing all that together in that moment. It's a true story. No, so that that was... I don't, I don't disbelieve that, you. <laughs> that was how the festival happened in 2017. Um, so as part of the events that they were having downstairs, um, BT were talking about their success with sport, and then one of the questions asked was, what's your next kind of frontier? And the then chief executive said, well, drama is very expensive for us, but we're very open to ideas and conversations. So after the event, I introduced myself to the chief executive and obviously I told him about the festival. He was very impressed. And he said to me, well, if you can make the business case for the festival and for diversity, yeah. we'd like to hear more. Um, so that was in March. We had a meeting about a month later after I gave them a one-page pitch. And then we had the presentation at one of their other offices. Um, and literally their first response after we gave the presentation was, so the dates are free. And I looked at my wife, who was with me at the time, and was like, <laughs> excuse me, what, no questions about... Um, they literally signed everything off. So it's like, it's like incredible. And so obviously we... 
kind of reminisce about that story to various friends and close people. And it's like, that's literally how the relationship with BT came about, just from thinking big. And then obviously my grandfather as well was obviously the stimulus for all of that. And it's very important to channel people of importance in your life. But what out of interest though, what you, you you've told us the journey, you've told us about the idea and you've told us sort of a route to getting a potential place and everything. But yeah. why why, given what's happened in twenty twenty, does that remain an important vision for both? Well, I think with what's happened this week, here we are, 25th of February, we're three days removed from the Prime Minister's announcement about the restrictions being totally lifted on the 21st of June. And so obviously the cinemas have pounced on that because um, for cinemas, I think they can open as a non-essential uh, retail outlet on the 17th of May. So obviously they've taken that as a signal as we're going to be back to normal from the 17th of May. So in many ways, people are still thinking that there will be some sense of normality coming back. We don't know how that's going to look like, but I guess in answer to your question... No, of course, no. I think you're right, though. I think you're right. I think it's worth hoping, isn't it? Yeah, but in answer to your question, obviously the, everything's back on the table, I guess, with the possibility of a buff cinema. But I say that, the fact that we're now on Apple, it's whether we can have our cake and eat it, I guess, is, what I'm, is the question that I'm asking myself, as opposed to answering your question. Can a physical buff cinema owned by buff exist alongside a digital home on Apple? Um, you know, Disney, for example, have got the theme parks. Um, they've got their own studios, production houses, and they've got Disney Plus. But obviously, with restrictions likely to lift in the States a lot later, would there still be that importance placed on the theme parks? Because obviously a lot of Disney's income is reliant on people attending Disney World and Disneyland, etc. But the fact that Disney, in the space of a year, have been able to attract 100 million paying monthly subscribers to Disney+, Plus will make them think, well, do we... Do we need Disneyland? Is it really that important to the bottom line when we can attract 100 million people to sit at home and consume the Disney experience in the form of the Disney content, you know, whether it's the films or the TV shows? So, you know, again, it's a lot of questions that people are having about how the experience of film should or will look in the next 12 months. And I guess for Buff, it's great to be part of the conversation. So watch this space is what I would say in terms of the Okay, buff okay. Well, look, it's oh, been... It's, I'll never rule it out, but... No, you know, of course, of course. Knows. Look, you've been very generous with uh, with describing the, the sort of uh, sort of the, the, the potted history of what got you to where you are now and, and then what you actually did in during COVID and how, that, how you... And I think implicit and explicit in what you've said is, is sort of... There's pressure to change, but then there's there's not just pressure to change because of COVID. There's there's a need to be relevant, which I think is the word you kept using. So I think that's the the important thing is 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 take the pressure of relevance more than the pressure of ne- of just like needs must because absolutely because what people will perceive is what Buff is, not not what Buff did. You know, brands mm. are about is, aren't they? I mean, your wife as a marketer as a marketing person will know this, and I think that's what you've been able to do, haven't you? With your with the with the presence of mind. To, to take opportunities that seem to add value, it, it has then made the idea of Buff seem more and more like, you know, the, what's the expression? You know, the um, 
bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, like you know, you see, you know, you see a football team that's got no stars in it, but they're at the top of the league. You go, okay, well, they're the, the sum of the parts is obviously working, and that's kind of sure. And I'm I'm glad because you've reminded me of another part of the pivoting which we've constantly been doing, not just with thinking about the physical aspect of Bath, hmm. the festival aspect of Bath, but the content as well, because we've not talked about Bath Originals hmm. in terms of the fact that Bath is heavily reliant on other people's content. But there will come a time where that sense of having to rely on other people's content, which Netflix um, were able to identify early on, hence their pivot to original content. And so for Buff, one of the things that we did three years ago, in fact, in 2018, was to go into original production with our first feature film, No Shame, which was written and directed by my wife. So obviously my wife has been a huge part of the, the pivot of Buff. Um, you know, she, in many ways, she has fast-tracked um, my thinking as to how films should be seen and appreciated. And so for her, not just as a marketer, but as someone who already had a natural affinity for Buff, having mm. trained at Identity Drama School uh, under the stewardship of Femi Ogans, but um, with her track record of being a qualified dermatologist um, and analogist and being honoured by the Queen for services to dermatology, the reason why she wanted to go into film was one, because of what Buff had done, the safe space was already established. So for her to come up with a story, but also a piece of content that would be wholly owned by Buff in terms of we would have complete control as to how we would distribute the film, market the film, cast the film, crew the film. And because Buff has that kind of track record, we're able to tap into various people mm. um, with the Buff reputation intact. So it's very easy for us to cast, crew, market. Obviously, raising money is a totally different yeah. um, altogether. But by having our own film, we then answered the question, well, if people stopped giving us content, where would Buff be? And so here we are now, three years later, with No Shade doing great things on the circuit, in terms of winning awards, um, having a presence on Apple um, and various other platforms as well. Where can, where can people see the film? So they can see the film in our room on Apple TV. Um, there are various other platforms where they can watch it as well as on our website, noshadesfilm.com. Mm -hmm. um, and because of No Shade, we're in a position now to um, talk to finances about our second feature film. But really it's about scaling up on original production. Obviously we're, we're not in a position to produce 30 or 60 films a year, like Sky Originals have announced recently, or indeed 80 films a year, like Netflix announced a few years ago. But that's very much one of our kind of uh, middle to long-term objectives over the next 12 to 18 months, where we'd like to at least get to double figures in terms of producing not just long-form content, but short-form content as well. Let me stop you there, because I think we've covered a lot of ground for one podcast. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you, Stuart. It's been great to be here.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.